Good morning, friends. Uh, we're going to continue our little series of messages on Jonah. And uh, we got to chapter 2 last time where Jonah, in the belly of the big fish, composes a very beautiful prayer that takes the form of a psalm. And this is where we're going to pick up today, Jonah chapter 2. A couple of things to note as we begin. First, he cries to God for help. In verse 2, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Well, there's no bragging here. He knows that if God doesn't save him, he'll never get out of the great fish alive. <clears throat> and second, he confesses that God put him where he is. He said in verse 3, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. Now, I want you to note that Jonah does not blame the sailors for throwing him in. He doesn't blame the storm or the big fish. Jonah sees clearly that behind the ship and the storm and the casting of lots and the uh, violent sea and the great fish, behind all of it stands the Lord of the universe. <clears throat> and so it is Jonah bows before God and says, I'm here because you put me here. And you know something, friends, it's a great advance spiritually to stop blaming other people for your problems. And Jonah does this. He knows he must answer to the Lord alone. And third, he feels like he's going down to die in the great fish. Verse 5, he said, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. See, there's no way out unless the Lord brings him out. Apart from God, he's Sunday lunch for the big fish, and there's nothing to be done about it. And fourth, he remembers the Lord is his only hope. In verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. Well, finally, Jonah is acting like a real believer. After all the running away, after all the disobedience, after all the prodigality, after all the self-centered living, God has Jonah's undivided attention. Well, that kind of reminds me that, you know, God's going to do whatever it takes to bring us to the place where we remember him. He'll stop at nothing, and that includes calamity, sickness, loss, repeated failure, and heartbreak. Whatever it takes to get us on our knees is good for our spiritual growth. Jonah is saying, Lord, I've been running from you for a long time, and now at last you've got my full attention. And fifty vows to serve the Lord. Verse 9, but I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Now you can see the spiritual progress he's making in this psalm. First, he acknowledges that God put him where he is. Second, he accepts God's discipline. Third, he thinks he's going to die. Fourth, he finally remembers the Lord. And then, and only then, does he vow to serve the Lord. He comes to the great conclusion in verse 10. Salvation is of the Lord. This is the hardest lesson for any of us to learn. I mean, salvation starts with God. It ends with God. Now, some of us struggle a lifetime to learn that. I mean, most of us have to learn it over and over again. And sadly, some people never learn it at all. But again, friends, there is no salvation, no deliverance, no getting better until we realize that if God doesn't save us, we will never be saved. That's the advantage of being in the belly of a big fish. It clears the mind so that you can think about what matters most. Most of us would probably improve spiritually if we spent a few days in that big fish or someplace without TV or radio or Internet or Facebook or whatever. In the terrifying darkness inside the fish... Jonah realized the folly of fighting against God. As the wise man said, your arms are too short to box with God. He's going to win every time. Well, what have we learned so far? 
We'll just wrap up this short message today with a few observations about Jonah's journey. One, although he was a prophet, it had been a long time since he had talked honestly with God. That's amazing and frightening how easy it is for church people to go through life without talking to God. Now, why do you think Jonah prayed in the big fish? Well, I think for one thing, there was nothing else to do. Without the regular distractions of life, Jonah focused on the Lord. Now, people often ask me, why doesn't God speak to me? To which I answer, I think he speaks to you all the time, but you won't slow down long enough to listen. The loud clamor of life and the constant pressure to get things done, to meet our goals, to cross items off of our to-do list, all of it conspires to keep us from hearing the still, small voice of God. But God knows how to speak to us, and he certainly knows how to get our attention. You know, it's a good thing to be desperate if desperation turns your heart to the Lord. Now, I can imagine a few few things worse than being in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. But it's better to be in the fish and talking to God than being on dry land boasting about your big plans. See, you pray inside the great fish because God doesn't do something. Because if God doesn't do something, you're going to die there. But I want you to notice this. It's not the belly of the fish that's inherently more dangerous than living in a luxury suite in a high-rise hotel. I mean, you can get in trouble anywhere. An earthquake can strike, a tornado can come. A car can veer off the road. Catastrophe can strike at any moment. You can be singing a tune one moment and have a stroke in the next. It happens every day. I mean, no one is immune to trouble. And there is nowhere on earth where you are truly safe from heartbreak or sadness or disease or danger and even death. And second, God had to stop Jonah in his tracks in order to get his attention. I want you to note the progression so far. In chapter 1, Jonah acts and keeps messing things up. In chapter 2, Jonah prays and things start getting better. And often our greatest problem is slowing down enough to hear God's voice. And three, God delights to deliver his people from impossible situations. Being trapped inside a great fish for three days and three nights is an impossible situation. Even after Jonah gets right with God, he's still inside that fish. He's never going to get out on his own. So God works an amazing deliverance. I mean, just look at verse 11 of chapter 2. It says, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. See, the same Lord who appointed the fish to catch him now tells the fish to let him go. And by the way, I checked out the Hebrew word translated vomit, and it means vomit. That's a very good translation. Now, some of you have heard of projectile vomiting, and that's what happens here. I mean, Jonah literally took a ride on the regurgitron. I mean, one moment he's wedged in the belly of the fish, the next he's flying through the air, and the next he lands on the shore covered with shrimp cocktail. All of it means, all of it meant to teach him and us that salvation is of the Lord. You know, Jesus told a parable in Luke 15, fits the story of Jonah. A young man comes to his father and says, give me my share of the inheritance. So the father did, and the young man took the money, left his money, journeyed to a far country where he spent the money on wild living. One translation calls it riotous living. And he probably spent it on wine, women, and song, and it worked out until the famine came. By the way, you can mark it down. The famine always comes sooner or later. You can have fun and spend your money and live any way you like. You can throw off all restraint, but the famine comes eventually. When the money runs out, you find that your so-called friends 
don't return your phone calls, answer your texts. I mean, they were happy to party with you when you had cash in your pocket and a credit card to cover everything else. But when you tap out, party buddies suddenly disappear. So now here he is. He's feeding the pigs, hoping to catch a little from the slop bucket. The Bible says when the prodigal son came to his senses, he said to himself, Back home, my father's servants have plenty to eat. I'll get up and go to my father and say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. So he begins the long, slow, difficult journey home, ashamed and embarrassed of what he had done, wondering what his father would do. Now, he needn't have worried. I mean, Jesus said the father saw his son a long way off. That means he'd been waiting, 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 waiting for his son to come home. And probably you know the people in the village were making fun of him. Maybe they said, come on in, old man. That son of yours is gone forever. Don't waste any more time on him. Give it up. But he would not give it up. He said, I won't come inside. I'm waiting for my son to come home. And day after day, he waited and watched and hoped for a sign his son was coming home. And then one day he saw it, a tiny speck on the horizon. The father ran to meet his son while he was still far away. He didn't say, let him come all the way and then I'll talk to him. He ran after him, and he couldn't wait to see his son again. See, after his father had hugged and kissed him, the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, that was the speech he'd rehearsed. He was going to say, make me like one of your hired hands, but he never got those words out. The father wouldn't let him say it. Why? Because once a son, always a son. A son at home, a son far away, a son in the pig pen, a son on the way back home. That's why the father said, go get the sandals, go find my best robe, get the golden ring, kill the fatted calf. My son who is lost has been found. My son who is far away has come home. Let's party on. Now, friends, I got some good news here, and that's this. The lights are always on in the father's house, and the door is always open. The father stands waiting for his prodigal sons and daughters to come back home. And he doesn't say, clean yourself up first. He just says, come on home. We can't wait to see you again. He doesn't say, prove that you are worthy, because no one is worthy of the Father's love. He just says, if you're tired of living in the far country, if you're tired of running away, if you're ready to come home, the door is always open to you. So what's the hardest part about coming home? It's that first step. And how hard it is sometimes to take that first step back home to God. Prodigals are scared to take that first step because they're afraid of what awaits them on the other end of the journey. I mean, what if there was no one to meet them? What if no one is happy to see them? What if they're greeted with nothing but angry words? But again, friends, they don't understand that Jesus has paved the way home in his own blood. His death is so great and his resurrection so complete that nothing can be added to the value of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. That's why when Jesus spoke himself spoke about this, he called his own resurrection the sign of the prophet Jonah. You can read that in Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, even so Jesus was in the heart of the earth. As Jonah came out of the fish, even so Jesus came out of the realm of death. You know, the story of Jonah points us to Jesus. And the story of Jesus tells us how far God will go on behalf of guilty sinners. He sent his son to the lowest place on earth, to the bloody cross of Calvary, the emblem of suffering and and shame. And out of that shame, he fashioned our salvation. Now, the door to heaven has been thrown wide open. All the reluctant Jonas of the world can find their way home to God. 
You know, sometimes we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I sometimes wonder if we shouldn't change just one word to get the full impact of this story. Well, I would change it to this outrageous grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know, friends, the grace of God is not just amazing. It's absolutely outrageous. It welcomes the worst sinners into the courts of heaven. It makes a way for even super-religious people to be forgiven of all of their sins. And for the rebel today who languishes in the far country, feeling alone and forgotten, God's grace reaches out and says, Jesus has paid the price. When you're ready, you can come home to God. Father, we thank you that we don't have to be perfect, because if we did, who among us would qualify? We thank you that we don't even have to scrape off the dirt of our own foolish mistakes. We couldn't do that if we tried. All we need to do is to turn and come home. Lord Jesus, you're the friend of sinners. We are so glad because you're a friend and we are the sinners. Thank you, Lord, for this story because if Jonah can get a second chance, there's hope for all of us. Give us grace to come to you and courage to take the first step. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And friends, guess what? Next week, Jonah 3, the greatest revival ever. And until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.